Hello, and welcome to But I'm a Professional. This is a learning and development podcast with a focus on being well while working well. Do you want to adopt a growth mindset, improve self-awareness, strengthen your emotional intelligence, and communicate better, perhaps? Well, you've come to the right place. My name is Nancy Elizabeth, and I'm here to help. Come on in. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to take a few brief moments to say hello, hi, hey, and thank you to some of the listeners out there. I don't get a terrible amount of information um, on the platform that I use for this podcast, but it does give um, IP addresses, well, not IP addresses, but it gives a sense of where they're coming from. So, for example, my um, 31% of my listeners are listening in the United Kingdom. Um, But other than that, I have no idea which bit. Um, And then 23% of you are in the U.S. of A. Um, I think if I click on that, however, it does break it down into state. Yes, Washington coming in at 17% out of that group of listeners. Um, So thank you to that 31% in the U.K. Thank you to 23% in the U.S. And then coming in third place, Germany at 11% of my listenership. Uh, guten Tag or Grüß Gott if you're in the southern bit and uh, wie geht's thank you for listening very much um, and of course number four nine uh, percent of my listenership is coming from my home and native land dear Canada that must be my family hi guys um, yes, just wanted to say, uh, very much appreciate anybody and everybody who tunes in. I also have listeners from, um, countries are represented, let's see, uh, the UAE, Argentina, Kenya, Australia, Sweden, Ethiopia, South Korea. Wowee. Um, so yes, thank you to each and every one of you. I see you kind of, uh, and I very much appreciate you tuning in. All right, I want the rest of the episode. Okay, let us continue with the actual content of this week's episode. Um, I suppose I should explain a little bit about where um, this week's episode is coming from. Um, because it might not be abundantly clear and it's sort of a crossover of a couple of ideas. Um, I should say in, in, you know, when I'm, when I'm searching to, um, gather information on how we can, you know, generally improve our professional experiences, I go down quite a few rabbit holes, as you would imagine. Um, and, you know, peer through the odd looking glass here and there. Um, sometimes that looks like, you know, the latest journal articles in, especially in, uh, organizational psychology and things that are related to that, uh, discipline. Um, but sometimes it's more reading about how, you know, organization X is doing Y and how, how they got that so wrong and, and what, you know, what kind of trouble it caused for everybody. Um, sometimes it's, conversations that I, I feel like I'm having over and over again with people, with different people in my life. Um, and that conversation, you know, it's always like variations on a theme. There's something, there's a similar thread going through it. And, and then that forces me, 
to to read up more on whatever it is that we're discussing, whatever the issue is. So I suppose my my point here is that, um, and I do have one, I swear. Uh, my point here is that inspiration tends to to strike from many different angles. And this episode in particular was inspired by a recurring conversation that I've had recently about how how we feel about risk in the decisions that we make at work and not risk for the organizations necessarily, but risk around the decisions that we make, the risk to ourselves and to our, to our future at work, I suppose. Okay. Um, I think we, most of us spend quite a bit of our working lives trying to make decisions that obviously have the best outcomes. Um, sometimes those are really big and broad and easy, you know, easy to identify, uh, particularly if they're, if they ch- sort of change the direction of travel. Um, and some of them are a little bit smaller and some are, um, you know, not easy, like there's no right answer, whereas others are, are fairly obvious. So, you know, it's a really, it's a really tricky area to navigate, um, making decisions that, and it, you know, particularly when they directly involve you or they have an impact on you. Um, see, the travel is, you're, you're messy and you're skillful and you're chaotic and you're talented and you're emotional and you're beautiful and you're doing your best. But that complexity is also in, in our decision making as well. Okay. So, I think we are in the most, as humans, we're in the most unfortunate position when it comes to making the the types of decisions that are so closely um, closely tied to outcomes that involve ourselves, because because we are those messy creatures, right? And because we're sort of at the whim of our the giant computer that's in your head, um, you know, our brains struggle with with quite a bit of. Um, cognitive biases and misunderstand how our memory works a lot, of, a lot of the time. Well, not even misunderstand. I mean, I think that's a bit too active. I suppose we don't think about it. Um, we aren't fully aware a lot of the time about what is we reconstructed and how what we've what we think we've witnessed and what we think happened is is a truth or a version of the truth, for example. Anyway, all of this to say, we make a lot of decisions at work, and when it comes to making decisions that, you know, immediately and obviously impact us, um, it gets very tricky, and we start to to think a lot about risk. So we get this collision, this this sort of Venn diagram space where we've got, um, you know, a self awareness circle, and we've got a, a risk circle, and in a decision making happens out of those two things. And so this episode, we're trying to focus on how we can better understand all those uh, parts of it. Um, how can we can better understand ourselves, how we can better understand how we perceive risk and, and how those things um, collide to, to inform our decision making and what that, what that means for us. Okay. That's what our, our broad focus is today. Yeah. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Nancy Elizabeth, that is crystal clear. Please crack on. You're probably not. But let's let's move on and let's think about how what this has to do with your the professional side of yourself. And maybe it'll be a little bit more tangible rather than me sort of blathering on about um, 
vague, gooey shapes in my, in my mind that I can't really explain to you very well. Let's do that. Okay, what does this have to do with our professional selves? Very pertinent question, I would argue. Um, that collision that I mentioned, the, the Venn diagram overlap, uh, well, chances are you run into that all the time because you are an employed human being. I mean, you know, presumably you're, you're currently employed. You, you may be on some sort of break. You may be enjoying what we like to refer to as a strategic pause. Uh, or maybe you're part of the Great Resignation and you are searching for something that is, uh, you know, less exploitative and um, more of a reflection of, of what you should be paid and what you should be spending your time doing. Who knows? In any case, you are tuning in, so you are at least uh, interested in knowing what this has to do with your professional self. So let's talk about that. Let's go through um, the uh, the three different categories. Let's start with self-awareness in, in how it relates to your professional self. Um, now, as always, we want to make sure that our language is, is aligned. So when I say self-awareness, what I mean is uh, the ability to clearly and objectively see oneself as much as, as that is ever possible. Um, the idea that we achieve that clarity and that objective uh, uh, vision of self, uh, we achieve that through reflection and introspection and also the idea that it is a lifelong practice. Um, it's not something that you achieve and then you dust off your hands and you put it away. No, self-awareness is something that you continue to um, take part in. Um, I mean, I suppose to be fair, everything that has ever, um, you know, showed up on this podcast, I have done with the undercurrent of improving your understanding of self-awareness, because I think that is such a fundamental necessity to function well in life, not just at work, but particularly at work, because I think sometimes we, we focus quite a bit on the technical side of things. And sometimes we, we, you know, expect the other bits to be somehow innate or just we'll pick them up as we go along. Um, so yeah, that's why it's, it's often an undercurrent in a lot of the episodes here. Um, basically if you, if you continue to grow your self-awareness practice, it will do things like facilitate positive self-development. It will improve your self-control. It will enhance your communication. It will help you to make good choices and so on. These are all things that are just, you know, going to immensely help you, um, in your professional life. So a very, very good uh, practice to develop, I would argue. Um, let's talk about decision-making really briefly when it comes to your professional self. I mean, there are you know, very obvious benefits to improving your ability to make good decisions um, or effective decisions, I suppose. Um, but, but at the same time, like it is very much, you know, if I just say decision-making, like that's, that's huge. That's um, something that you have to do constantly and, and, um, it comes in many, many different sizes and shapes. Um, sometimes it's exhausting. Um, we, I suppose we can't really go through all of that here. Um, because this episode, I'm not trying to focus on type of decision or, or how to make the perfect decision or anything like that. What I'm more 
thinking about is what your brain usually gets up to when you're in the decision-making process uh, with things that you you perceive to be, um, you know, to have huge impact on yourself. And more specifically thinking about that in a, a work environment that might be a bit stressful or a situation that might not be um, particularly positive, okay? So we'll try to narrow it down a little bit rather than just thinking about decision-making in general when it comes to work because that's, that's way too broad, okay? Um, finally, in terms of risk, um, I'm not, like I said off the, the top of the episode, I'm not interested in talking about like risk management uh, in your organization. That's, you know, I, I, I will leave that to whoever is doing your webinars at work and I will leave you to fall asleep in the back row. I'm just kidding. Um, well, kind of, I mean, it's fairly dull. Um, but no, we're not, we're not here to talk about risk management, um, for your organization. What I'm talking about instead is the concept of risk that is given shape and structure by you. Um, and also perhaps by those you work with or, or, and, or you work for, Okay. Uh, we're not really interested in talking about like the effective ways of understanding, you know, organizational risk or evaluating it or holding organizational risk. What we're, what we're talking about is the kind that is perceived by you for you and how that shapes your choice of action at work. Okay. Perhaps if we thought about a tangible example here with risk, uh, let's think about if you are in a position um, and you want to influence others, right? So you are in the pursuit of influencing, yeah? Now, when you are attempting to have influence, even at the most, most you know, basic level of just persuading people to work toward some sort of common goal, yeah, um, you are going to consider different ways that are available to you uh, to do that, to persuade people to work towards that goal. So, you know, presumably you're doing this in part to solidify a positive reputation for yourself, you know, in, in one way or another. And you're aware that there's a certain amount of risk in choosing one way of influencing um, because it might not actually give you the outcome that you seek. All right. So like I'm talking about that level of, of risk. Okay. Like risking, um, trying to influ influence people in one way and actually it either neutrally doing nothing or, or worse backfiring and having the opposite effect. So now that we understand what we're, we're talking about and we have a little bit more of a tangible structure to, to set our, um, actions on, let us do that. Let's talk about what it is that we can do um, to, to make this easier and more effective for ourselves at work, shall we? Y'alls, let's shall. Perhaps if we start off with the foundational uh, aspect, that would be of some use to everyone. So yeah, let's start by talking about um, how we can improve our self-awareness, first of all, um, because that is going to, I think, factor largely in um, them being able to understand personal risk and then being, being able to um, make decisions in a way that feels more grounded in uh, you and, and your needs, okay? So always starting with self, 
always put your oxygen mask on first. Let's do that. I have spoken about some of these things, like I said, in other episodes for sure. And I think I've, I've talked about things to do in order to improve your self-awareness. And, and sometimes that's really um, simple daily practices like, you know, being mindful of yourself and seeing how you react to things and all that kind of stuff. So in this episode, I think it might be a bit more useful to um, talk about the barriers that we often find coming up against uh, improving self-awareness. Um, what are those barriers? What might they look like? And what can we do to um, just do a quick little hop over them on our journeys? Yeah. So ready your pencils, ready your mind maps, ready your listicles. Let's start. The first barrier to self-awareness that we want to talk about today is, drumroll please, say it with me now, confirmation bias. Yes. I'm sure you saw that one coming a mile away. Um. As I said, we have talked about several cognitive biases before, uh, and we will continue to because, first of all, there are quite a few of them. And secondly, they they like to play a more active role in your life than you might think that they do. And this isn't to say that you need to be hyper aware and you need to be on the watch for them all the time and you need to, you know, sort of put yourself in a state of, of you know, just disappearing up your own exhaust pipe. That's not what I mean. Noticing and sometimes um, noticing in a, in a reflective space is, is probably, you know, the the best you're ever going to do. And that's fine. That's great. Like I said, this is um, a pursuit of improved self-awareness. So it's just understanding why you do what you do and getting a better, um, a better sense of it. Okay. So just noticing your biases are going to be of a huge help to you. You don't need to do a terrible amount of work on like, how can I make this stop happening? Well, you probably can't make everything stop happening because your brain is just wired that way. Um, But we can notice and, and we can sometimes if we're, you know, particularly attuned to ourselves, we can, we can notice it happening while we're doing it and then pull back from that space a little bit to make, um, to make better decisions. Okay. So let's focus on on how we can do that. Confirmation bias uh, is, I think, particularly popular uh, in the workspace because we are often looking for, well, what you would expect, what it says. We are looking for confirmation. So we already have an idea in our heads. I think this is the right thing. And then we our you know, heat-seeking missile brain goes looking for a confirmation or several bits of, of information that will confirm that to be true, all right? So this really, as you can imagine, will get in the way when you want to make a decision that understands um, other possibilities uh, or that, that a decision that indicates the variety of factors that are going on that perhaps you have overlooked or perhaps you have missed, all right? So how do you get past your confirmation bias? Well, I think you already know, and I'm sure we've discussed this before as well, it comes down to diversity of voices in the room, or I suppose it could be diversity of voices in your head, but that might get a little bit tricky. Um, So diversity of voices in the room, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that um, we have to have representation for um, ethnicity, uh, age, things like that. It's, it's more to do with 
when you when you are having these conversations, do you look around the room and does everybody have the same background? Um, does everybody have the same experience at work? Um, and sometimes that that is related to to um, gender and age and ethnicity and all those kinds of things. Um, so really, it's it's just making sure that you're not seeking the same information from the same sources uh, all the time when it comes to making decisions. Okay, so check yourself on that. Check your confirmation bias. Um, as I said, there are quite a few of these cognitive biases, and and I, I wouldn't want you to start, you know, um, fretting over how you're going to to make them all stop. I don't think that's a, a useful goal. I think awareness is, is much more uh, useful and much more sort of something that you can manage in a day-to-day basis. But other, uh, you know, on top of that, I should say, um, the, the cognitive biases that are, I think, more present in the workspace tend to be things like um, your availability heuristic as well as the representativeness heuristic. Um, also your false consensus effect happens at work a lot. Um, and, um, Dunning-Kruger effect happens at work a lot as well, especially in technical spaces, um, and skill spaces. But we've talked about that before and, and, um, I don't think it's particularly useful here, but let's go back to these, these heuristics. Yeah. The availability heuristic and the representativeness, uh, heuristic. Let's identify what those are, what those look like, and then what we can do to overcome them. Okay. So availability heuristic is, I mean, both heuristics are, um, sort of shortcuts, for for your mind because again your mind is very busy it's making decisions constantly it's responding to things constantly so you don't always have a huge amount of time to spend on every little thing so your brain comes up with these sort of mental shortcuts um, to bring things to your mind quickly and to let you choose something and then move on to the next thing right Um, the availability heuristic is is when you know whatever it is that pops into your mind quickly is deemed also to be the most significant thing, okay? Now, sometimes that's true. What does pop up quickly is the most significant, um, but sometimes that's not true. And the trouble is, if if you're trying to make a decision and what's coming to your mind quickly is something that you perceive to be the most significant and actually it isn't, then you're gonna make your decision based on, um, you know, sort of faulty information, I suppose, okay? Um, I was reading a good example about this the other day related to work. Um, For example, if you see a lot of news coverage about people losing their jobs or unemployment rates going sky high um, or people being laid off in a certain sector, you might start to believe that you also are going to, you're about to lose your job. And so that will cause you to, you know, worry about it and, think what you what you need to do and then make some some sort of decision based on that okay so that might not be the case that might not be what's going to happen to you but your brain has already decided uh oh we got to do something we need to we need to make moves right um and so that can impact again your decision making so the other heuristic the representativeness heuristic uh is more to do with um comparisons and and prototypes that you have in your mind okay um 
essentially what your brain does it is, is a sort of estimation uh, on the likelihood of an event by comparing the the outcome of that to some existing prototype that that you already have in your mind can you hear the car horns outside isn't that delightful um the prototype that you have in your mind is what we think is the most relevant information. We think it's the most typical representation of whatever the situation is. But the trouble is with, with this sh mental shortcut, again, is we often overestimate similarities uh, between the two things that we're comparing, okay? And it's that overestimation of similarities that can cause us to make poor decisions because actually the two things aren't as similar as we as we thought they were. Yeah. Uh, in a 2019 study, well, the, it was published in 2019 in a journal on um, behavioral psychology. There was the the study found that um, managers made uh, biased decisions more than 50 percent of the time. Okay, and a lot of those biased decisions were based on representativeness heuristics, right? This can very much become part of how you make your decisions at work. Just again, it, it comes down to a time issue. A lot of the time we feel we need to make decisions quickly and, you know, we use the information, the prototypes that we already have and think it's a similarity, think there's enough of a similarity there that we can um, make a, a an, an effective decision to move on and while again again that is sometimes the case we overestimate how often that is the case so that's something to reflect on as well okay the the only other um cognitive bias that i wanted to mention here was the false consensus effect because uh, that happens at work quite a bit too and this i suppose this is is not it's not not linked to um, your confirmation bias, right? Because you, you've surrounded yourself with, um, a certain, a certain group of people and you've, um, got into the habit of delivering information in a certain way and everybody is, you know, quote aligned. Um, but actually again, the false consensus effect comes down to your perception of how much people agree with you or to what percent people agree with you. Um, and a really obvious way to, to overcome this is um, to, to put things in place that uh, encourage people to, to give negative feedback or to, um, to speak up with uncomfortable uh, opinions or perhaps tricky opinions, or if that doesn't work, to anonymize things so that um, you, can, you can get better information. Uh, rather than always assuming that oh we're all on the same page great okay let's move on next item, um, you don't you don't want to find yourself going down that uh, spiral yeah. I mean it's it's great if you want to be a dictator but you know maybe not if you want to lead or you know function well at work. Okay so that's enough about cognitive biases I think let's move on to another way that we can improve our self awareness by overcoming a barrier. One of the other barriers that I would like to encourage you to overcome is to, to stop confusing your remembering self with your experiencing self. Okay, can you do that for me? Fantastic, great, let's move on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what is she talking about? Uh, yes, well, 
the remembering self versus the experiencing self is a theory from um, a psychologist by the name of Daniel Kahneman. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, his work focuses mainly on cognitive biases um, and uh, some other things, but specifically this uh, this theory, um, there's quite a bit of information both in research and also I think there's a TED Talk. I'm fairly sure there's a TED Talk. I will put a link in the notes. Right. The theory goes as such. You are, there are two selves within you. One is the experiencing self that lives in the present and is obviously experiencing. And the other is uh, a remembering self, so sort of lives in the past, but also lives a bit in the future because plans a future based on potential memory making. Okay. Um, A really great example that the good professor gives is um, visiting the doctor. Okay. So when you visit the doctor, your, you know, the doctor taps whatever place and says, does this hurt? And your experiencing self will say yes or no, right? Because that's what you are experiencing. But then the doctor will also ask you, have you been feeling the last few weeks? And that is your remembering self, okay? So these two parts of you have to coexist. The trouble is, in a couple of different areas, we, we overuse the, the remembering self, Okay, or I suppose we overapply the remembering self the, uh, and confuse the remembering self with the experiencing self. Okay, um, the other the other trouble that we get into is how we I think I, I mentioned this off the top as well how we perceive our memories. We perceive them to be um, like a like a photograph or or some kind of film, but actually your memory isn't really a photograph. It's more like it's more like a like a cubism painting or something. Like there are elements of reality there. There are elements of, quote, truth in it. But then there are also other parts that don't quite fit right or, you know, the the um, size isn't, this isn't exactly it or we had to fill in a couple of blanks because they were missing. And, you know, so your memory becomes more of a, a composite, right? Um, and... Which, again, it's fine. It's just it's the misunderstanding of a memory that you have as being a photograph when actually you're looking at a a cubism painting. You know what I mean? Um, I think I think the you know, again, it's not that you have to actively do anything other than being aware that your memory is is not uh, a perfect snapshot of a capital T truth. And also that your memory shouldn't hog so much of the limelight in your decision making right? Um, you, you know, more of your experiencing self should inform the decisions that you make rather than your remembering self. Um, I think another, another, uh, example that the professor gave in a talk was, uh, if you were planning a holiday and somebody told you, okay, plan your holiday, whatever, wherever you want to go and whatever you want to do. Um, at the end of the holiday, you're going to have to take a, a pill and it will make you forget just the holiday, the entire thing, but you won't remember any of it. Um, would you still, would you still take the same holiday? Right. And again, I suppose that exercise is to get you to, um, get you to investigate why you do the things that you do. Okay. So again, this isn't to argue that we, you know, we shouldn't, 
we shouldn't want good memories and all that kind of thing. It's just more um, nuanced understanding of, you know, how much weight we put on the remembering self versus how much we put on the experiencing self. And perhaps that's a little, a little too unbalanced. Okay. When it comes to making, making good decisions. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to one more thing, one more barrier to, um, self-awareness that we often find in the workspace. Um, and again, this is not, not linked to a lot of the things that we've already said. Do you like that? Do you like those double negatives? Um, the last thing that I, the last barrier that I want to talk about is uh, a resistance that a lot of us have to feedback and resistance that a lot of us have to advice. Okay. When I say resistance to feedback, I don't mean that it's necessarily in, you know, and, and so as you're listening to this and you're reflecting on yourself and you think, well, I get feedback all the time. I, I, that's not me. That's not my problem. I don't mean that. I mean, you get feedback, but you don't, even if you read it and you think, Ooh, yeah, no, that's a good point. You don't actually do anything. You sort of put it down and then move on and fight the next fire. Or, um, or perhaps you get feedback and you think, oh, you don't, you don't understand. It's, I'm doing this because of this, right? So it's, it's not that you have to always respond and you have to find yourself, you know, pulled pillar to post, um, you know, in response to everybody's feedback all the time. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is considering actually what you do about the feedback that you get, Right. And in addition to what you do, how is that, how is that seen? Is it seen by, by the rest of the team? Is it seen by your colleagues? Do they, are they able to notice on their own that feedback has been taken on board and change has been made appropriately or change has been made in some way to, to respond to said feedback? Um, you know, do your, do your actions sort of speak for yourself or speak for themselves in that space, right? Um, that's really key with the, with what I'm talking about with the resistance to feedback is that identifiable, identifiable change is required. Okay. Again, it doesn't need to be doing everything everybody else wants all the time, but change does need to be identifiable, um, so that the feedback actually works and, um, the process rather of it works. Okay. The other thing I mentioned was advice, and this is a little bit different because I think um, a lot of the language around um, a lot of the language in in workspaces and in organizations tends to focus very heavily on this this idea of getting feedback. But sometimes that's not what you need. I mean, sometimes you need a sort of a bit of feedback, but then you need advice. Okay, um, and and those two, I think too often get melded into one or, or feedback, you know, um, sort of takes, takes center stage all the time and advice doesn't really, doesn't really happen. Or I suppose similarly, sometimes we don't actually want advice. Um, and it just comes our way regardless. Um, because people don't, people don't always know when it's just time to listen and say things like, Oh yeah. Oh, that sucks. Oh, I hear you. Um, and feel compelled to give advice a lot of the time. So I, I suppose I, I think the, the way forward here is to, first of all, to understand where feedback, what it, what it looks like in its most effective way and what to do with it and where that fits in and then how it, you know, different, different to that is um, 
the the pursuit of and the the usefulness of advice and also how to actively construct putting that into your uh into your your exchanges at work okay so i mean you know sometimes you have to be quite active in seeking out advice especially if you want good advice why is it that the people who just offer it to you without you asking are the ones that you know often um aren't telling you things that are useful what is that um so perhaps this looks like um you know making sure that you you always have some sort of mentor in in whatever role that you have if possible it doesn't always need to be formalized it doesn't need to be um you know a process that's overseen by anybody else uh, sometimes it does. Uh, or similarly, if you're, you know, if you're a bit um, further into your career and you want to develop very specific things, think about getting a coach, um, you know, executive coach, things like that. That can all be uh, incredibly useful. Okay, let's reflect a little bit uh, on understanding uh, risk as it as it affects you personally. Okay, not a huge amount to talk about here. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, I suppose it would be helpful to start by saying that um, when we're thinking about personal risk, we can sort of organize it through the same frameworks that we often use when we're talking about um, our companies and our business more broadly. So, you know, you think about how you how you have those risk management um, conversations and stuff uh, and planning when you're considering things like, uh, you know, scale or the category of business function or guiding principles and, and things like that, you know, so you can, you can use some of that framework when it comes to, to the, the personal side of things. Um, but I think it's much more, much more useful, I would imagine, to engage in uh, more introspective exercises because that's what's going to that's what's going to move your brain into spaces where you can make better decisions, okay, or, or better informed decisions, I think. And, and seeing, you know, how you perceive risk will play a huge part in that. Okay, so let's think about it in that sense, rather than the sense of how we normally understand risk uh, from a company perspective, from a business perspective. Yeah. Um, I would argue one of the key things here is to push yourself past um, uh, the sort of the paralysis that comes around indecision and or, or being in that space for too long, whether that means you, you know, you're not making a decision. So it's causing you um, too much stress, uh, more, much more stress than stress than it's worth. Uh, or if you're in a in a, a position to make a decision and you you find yourself paralyzed somehow and unable to do so, then, you know, people that you were leading or people that you were working with, you know, perceive that to be um, a, a negative characteristic. Yeah. So what we want to do is focus on um, how we can, how we can move out of that space. And one of, uh, one effective way to do that is to engage in creating ambivalence. Okay. Now, Let's get something straight before I launch into this idea. Let's make sure we are using this word accurately. Ambivalence does not mean you don't care. Ambivalence means, well, let me, re let me read an actual um, definition for you. 
Ambivalence is the state of having two opposing feelings at the same time or being uncertain about how you feel. Okay. It does not mean that you don't care either way. All right. So we got that straight. Ambivalence. You have two opposing feelings at the same time. All right. Now, what we are, what we're trying to do here in understanding personal risk is like I said, we're trying to get ourselves to do something. And one of the ways that we can do that is to engage in the creation of ambivalence around whatever it is we're trying to decide. Okay. Um, there was a recent study in the academic journal, um, which I know you all have on your coffee tables right now, organizational behavior and human decision processes. Oh, it's a real, it's a real hit, hit maker. Um, the title of the, um, Um, The article is, In the Face of Self-Threat, Why Ambivalence Heightens People's Willingness to Act. Okay, so essentially this article um, argues that uh, rather than leading to inaction, uh, which which has often been found in in, uh, research before, um, they argue that creating ambivalence leads to action as long as it's in a high self-threatening context which sounds really scary, but it's not as scary as you think, okay? So the studies uh, previously in the research um, finding that uh, ambivalence leads to inaction, so you have conflicting emotions about something so you don't do anything, those are often studying low self-threatening contexts, okay? So, um, for example, uh, contexts that don't really pose any potential challenge to your self-view or your view of the world and stuff like that, okay? And this study did the opposite. It had the the um, the high self-threatening context, yeah? So, I mean, I won't, you know, read the whole study for you. Can you imagine? Um, however, I just wanted to, to um, go over some of the highlights coming out of the study. And those include um, the, this idea that uh, ambivalence towards a self-threatening outcome increases the pursuit of the outcome. Um, the second highlight is that ambivalence reduces self-threat inspired by a desired uncertain outcome. And finally, people do not intuit this effect and are likely not taking advantage of it. Okay, I think that last highlight is is something that um, we ought to reflect on for a second. People do not intuit this effect and are likely not taking advantage of it. We are not taking advantage of of ambivalence being something that can um, help us pursue an outcome, and we are not taking advantage of ambivalence reducing uh, reducing self threat. Okay, so. One of one of the ways that we can take better advantage of it is to to engage in it a little bit more and see um, see if that helps us in our in our decision making. Yeah. And I suppose you might be thinking, well, how do I do that? How do I engage in, in the creation of ambivalence? Um, I mean, I suppose the most obvious way is to to, you know, make a, a, a pros cons list. Um, and when you're doing something like that, making sure that you're not that you're not making sort of wild predictions, uh, but instead sticking to what you know to be true. Um, and it's not even necessarily that you make this list and then you come to a sudden conclusion, you know, a, a sort of uh, light bulb moment. I think a lot of the time going through these exercises helps us to better organize our thoughts. And then you just feel better, you know, on a better footing to make a decision. Um, 
but yeah, again, it's, it's creating that or, or, um, engaging in that, that process of sitting in your ambivalence to, uh, inspire and encourage action. Right. I think oftentimes we get, we get really frustrated by the inaction and that those feelings of, of being stuck or frozen or in some kind of purgatory because, because it's stressful to, to feel that specific type of disempowerment, right? That you, you can't really, you don't know how to move forward. You don't know how to make the decision. You, you're not sure which one to do and um, can't come down on, on either side of something. Um, and I think that's, that's very, um, yeah, it's a very disempowering, frustrating experience. So sometimes the best thing to do is just something, right? I think the final thing to consider um, with risk is to really draw in from the the self awareness, the self awareness work that we've we've already discussed because it it just gives you much better perception um, and it gives you a much better insight into really what this is what what potential this has uh, and and for what type of impact on on your life. Um, and can get you away from doing things like catastrophizing, uh, catastrophizing potential outcomes, which which makes decision making very very difficult, right? So as I mentioned at the beginning, these things really sort of work with each other, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, if I could just draw on, on a final example or or flesh out a, a final example to pull them all together. Um, for, you know, say you are, okay, you're employee X and you're working for organization Y and you've been with your organization for a little over a decade now. Uh, you've learned a lot. You've, you've built up experience. Um, but unfortunately you, you find yourself hitting a wall currently, or, you know, maybe a glass ceiling. Um, you find that, uh, the senior leadership team, they've been sort of dragging their feet on promises they made to you, uh, at the beginning of this financial year, um, you got yourself uh, a pay rise, but um, you didn't get any of the other things that, that you were promised, okay? They promised you mentorship, and that never happened. They promised you um, a seat at the table during, you know, uh, strategic meetings, and for some reason, that seat is still gathering dust in the corner, or they always find reasons for you not to attend. Um, so basically, you're feeling undervalued. And any feedback that you've given has been sort of met with a shrug. Okay. So clearly it's time to move on. You just need to, you just need to figure out how, right? So this is where it's decision time. What, what are you going to do? Okay. And this is where you find yourself in that, that, that space, those overlaps and in, in the, the diagram that I was talking about, you need to have a strong sense of self-awareness to understand all those things we talked about that, you know, this, um, this isn't being based on some sort of, you know, cognitive biases or anything like that. Similarly, you understand what the risks look like potentially and what impact they could have. And so with all those things coming together, you're better able to make a decision for yourself uh, in this particular situation. Okay. Which seems like I've said a lot of words to come to a fairly um, simple conclusion, but I will remind you, as I said, 
You're a very chaotic, messy creature, and sometimes we just wander around in the woods because we cannot see the trees. No, wait, that's not how that saying goes. You know what I mean. Um, right. Well, professionals, I want to thank you very much for tuning in today and listening. Uh, if you have found this episode or any other episode of any use, um, please do share it on your socials. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at but I'm a profesh, and you can also find this content and additional content on my Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash Nancy Elizabeth. I wish you a very good week full of effective decision making. Uh, and improved self-awareness. And uh, we'll see you back here next time. Goodbye.